This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Dr. Matt McCarthy. Matt joined me via Skype from New York to talk about his new book, Superbugs, The Race to Stop an Epidemic. Matt is Assistant Professor of Medicine at Vile Cornell and a staff physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital. He's also Editor-in-Chief of Current Fungal Infection Reports. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. And of course, I'm very excited to have with me uh, a wonderful guest who's going to be joining me via Skype from New York. His name is Dr. Matt McCarthy, and he's written a book, Superbugs, The Race to Stop an Epidemic, which is out in Australia through Scribe. And Matt is an assistant professor of medicine at Vile Cornell and is also a staff physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital. He's also editor-in-chief of Current Fungal Infection Reports, which is a medical journal, and he's written uh, other books, including The Real Doctor Will See You Shortly, as well as Odd Man Out. Now, I'm hoping that technology in this studio works, and we hear Matt's lovely voice. Hi there, Matt. Hi, how are you? Hi, I'm good. How are you doing? Great. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure and thank you so much for being available and giving us your expertise today. I really thoroughly enjoyed reading this book and um, we kind of had a bit of a nerdy delight in finding out (laughs) these fascinating scientific facts which are an everyday reality. Yeah. Yeah, this was a, you know, it's something I spent five years working on and I wake up in the morning and the first thing I do is think about superbugs uh, <laughs> as I head to work and go into the emergency room and, and see patients with these infections. And and that's what really, you know, got me on the kick to write about this because it's, it's really consumed my life uh, and I, I'm delighted to hear that other people are, are finding out about it now. Mm. And for background for everyone listening, you're an infectious diseases physician, I presume, and that's your specialty. That's correct. Yeah. And so in terms of um, how you approach your your job and your everyday work, we'll get into your research and um, development of antibiotics in um, a few moments. But I wanted to understand, first of all, how you experience your job and the types of situations that you are confronted with on a daily basis so that we can understand the types of scenarios and situations that you're finding yourself in that have driven you to write this. Yeah, well, I think it's it's useful first to define our terms. You know, the the word superbugs means different things to different people. Um, some people think that it's drug resistant bacteria, uh, but people like me take a bit of a more broad view and say it also includes drug resistant parasites and fungi and viruses. And when you look at the scope of of that issue, it, it's projected by the World Health Organization to be the biggest killer worldwide by 2050. 10 million people worldwide per year. So this is something that, you know, doctors and scientists are thinking a lot about, but we want the public to be thinking more about too. And the reason I wrote about this is that I had seen this really interesting shift um, from my time in medical school to my time now as a practicing specialist, which is that many of the infections I used to treat when I was in medical school, I could successfully do that with a pill, with an oral antibiotic. Uh, And then about five or 10 years ago, I found that the pills weren't working as well. And we started shifting to intravenous antibiotics. 
And now we're seeing that many of those intravenous antibiotics aren't working as well. And so this, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of reasons for this shift, but it's something that I want people to know about and to appreciate because uh, it's going to be one of the most important public health issues for the next 30 years and beyond. Mm. And, I mean, you are at the coalface of this issue, um, as many other physicians are, including those who work, for example, um, in the intensive care unit or critical care unit. Um, often a lot of doctors there will see people who have got some really substantial infections that are difficult to treat because they're already unwell. And um, and we see that you know people with lowered immune systems are more vulnerable to infection. Um, so it certainly sounds like on that scale, um, these particular superbugs, when they're not easily treated or even treatable at all, can be um, specifically or especially deadly to those people who are quite vulnerable. Absolutely. You know, I think that raises a really important point, which is that not everyone is equally at danger from superbugs. Uh, It's really important to know um, your risk. And the easiest way to do that is to talk with your primary care doctor or your general practitioner and say, how's my immune system? Because if your immune system is functioning properly, you don't really have that much to worry about on a day-to-day basis. Um, By contrast, if you have a medical condition that weakens your immune system or you're on a medication that weakens your immune system, you become suddenly at risk for all sorts of microbes that are in our environment. And one of the things I found doing research for my book is that so many of the patients who I ended up seeing who have superbug infections did not appreciate that they were at risk uh, for these types of infections. And they put themselves in harm's way, whether that was cleaning out a moldy basement or going into some sort of pond that might have, you know, all kinds of microbes floating around in it. And so the first step, I think, for anyone is just to have a conversation with a doctor and say, how's my immune system? And from there, you can have a, a nuanced conversation about risk and threat. Mm, That's a really excellent point um, because it certainly seems like a lot of people um, may, if if they're not used to being unwell or if being unwell is a new thing in their life, would not think about the potential for other illnesses to follow uh, the primary illness that you might be suffering from. And yeah, you're absolutely you're right. Yeah, it might be potentially more obvious when um, people might be having transplant surgery because that's something that a doctor would certainly hopefully raise with you, um, given that high risk for infection in those circumstances. But maybe not as much as um, people with uh, other illnesses that weaken their immune system, like even autoimmune illnesses that are already fighting off other um, conditions and are kind of hyperactive. Exactly right. And, you know, what I wanted to do with my book was to tell this story of superbugs through the lens of my patients, because I think that there has been, you know, a solid amount of journalism done that focusing on antibiotic resistance and the need for new drugs. But I felt like what was missing was looking at this story through the eyes of my patients. And so what you meet in my book are what probably 15 patients or so who are all grappling with these life-threatening infections. And, you know, the conversations that I have with them where I say, we've got to use an antibiotic that, that may work or it may not. And, 
you know, what that means for, for somebody and, and how debilitating these infections and these illnesses can truly be, I think is something that I really felt strongly that I wanted to get out into the world so that, you know, to raise awareness so that we can focus not just on the dangers, but also what we're doing about it. And, and the extraordinary people who are hunting for cures and looking for new drugs. And that was, to me, the most exciting part was was really focusing on on the optimistic side of things. Yeah, and I think that's what this book offers for me, like the rare value that it has in a sea of scary news stories about superbugs, which, you know, when I just Google it or look through my podcast app and type in superbugs, heaps of things turn up. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, doomsday scenarios. But um, when you're talking about superbugs, you often forget about the fact it has a human element to it. There are, you know, humans are the hosts of these bugs um, in many cases. And Often, I think, they must be confronted by or with a situation that they're completely blindsided by. And even often, I believe, uh, maybe primary practitioners like a general physician may not have even been aware of a certain fungi or bacteria that that shows up on a swab or a test. And they're often blindsided as much as the patient is. Absolutely. And, you know, many of the physicians, uh, you know, I work at a world-class hospital in Manhattan, Many of the physicians don't even know the types of tests we use to identify superbugs. They don't know what the treatments are. You know, they rely on um, highly specialized practitioners of infectious diseases. And so if the doctors, if most doctors don't fully appreciate this, um, it's certainly we don't expect the patients to. And that's one of the reasons I wrote this book was just to sort of serve as a primer for people to say, here's what you need to know. Here's how we got into this situation you know, starting back with penicillin, the first commercially available antibiotic, and then going through the history of how we had all of these extraordinary antibiotics being produced in the 1950s, you know, what became known as the golden era of drug development, and then how we took our eye off the ball, how a number of prominent scientists came out and said, we're doing so well with infectious diseases that we should focus on other things like heart disease and cancer, and how that shift uh, away from infectious diseases really led us to the scenario that we find ourselves in today. Exactly. And um, I'm going to, <clears throat> excuse me, touch on um, fungi before we go into bacteria, um, because I'm really fascinated by the fact that you focus on both and have specialization in both. And um, also the fact that I think, as you <laughs> rightly write about in your book, that fungi isn't really that sexy. And um, it's certainly... <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> it's not sexy ever, but it's definitely not that sexy in, in medicine. Um, and, you know, bacteria does sound far more interest, well, exciting to some people than I think fungi does. Um, but when I was speaking with microbiologists uh, and such, a lot of them say that it is a very difficult field and it's quite specialised, mycology. Um, and I was interested in the emergence of superbugs in the fungi area, um, you know, with examples like Candida auris, uh, Candida cruci, these kind of really rare fungi that presumably many people are hosting and, and potentially have, but are not, um, I guess, being overgrown uh, until a person gets in a situation where their immune system is low for, you know, a range of reasons. And suddenly 
that kind of issue becomes a problem for them and also for their practitioner. Can you share with us how fungi has become problematic in the superbug uh, arena and the reasons why there are so few um, drugs that are able to treat these very much more rare forms of candida than the kind of garden variety like candida albicans, which I'm sure many women in particular would be aware of? Well, I'm so glad you asked this question because uh, I am a a fungal guy at heart. (laughs) And I'll share with you, I think, a a really interesting thing that's going on right now in the world of fungal infections, which is um, the emergence of this uh, fungus uh, Candida auris that you mentioned. So this is a drug-resistant organism that is lethal in 50% of cases. And it was discovered in the ear of a woman in Japan in 2008, and it quickly spread around the world. And in the scientific journals, we have been writing for years about this fungus and how when it comes to the United States and when it comes to Australia and to other populated places, there's going to be big problems. And nobody really got that excited about it until it ended up on the front page of the New York Times uh, in April of this year. And there was this front page story in our, you know, our most revered paper saying that there was this deadly new fungus that was spreading around the globe. And I was quoted in that story. And I talked about the patients who I had treated with this. And the good news was that all of the patients I had treated survived. And uh, I talked about how scary it was, you know, dealing with, with this infection. And the next day, uh, a prominent TV show asked me to come on and talk about that Candida auris infection. And my hospital said, we don't want you going on to talk about it. And I said, well, why would that be? And they said, mm. we don't want our hospital to become affiliated with this superbug. Oh. We don't want people to think that we're infested. And I said, well, I'm not going on to to say that we're infested. I'm going on to say that you know, we have at our hospital the world experts who know how to treat this thing. And they, they got very uncomfortable. And people from the PR department said, we're not going to let you go on to, to talk about that. And I said, well, that seems like a mistake. Um, you know, I give lectures around the, around the world about this fungal infection. And the hospital said, well, you can, um, you can talk to other doctors about this, but we don't want you talking to the public about it. And that shows you how difficult this this topic is to convey to people. We would our hospital PR department would never prevent me from talking about cancer or heart disease or kidney disease, but when it comes to superbugs, people get very uncomfortable. And I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times saying that that this approach uh, was uh, a big mistake because superbugs aren't going away. And we, as medical practitioners and as hospitals, we need to think about. How do we tell people what's really going on? And that's what my book was an attempt at, is to say this is what's really happening and here's what we're doing about it. Mm, that's shocking and then somewhat not surprising <laughs> because, right. you know, yeah, I mean, I've seen it in uh, Melbourne even with certain superbugs becoming, you know, a a PR kind of issue and uh, people being reluctant to have that associated with a certain hospital. And certainly you see outbreaks of um, bacterial superbugs like, uh, now I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but carbapenem-resistant enterobacteria 
C, something like that? Yep. Yep. Carbapenemase resistant enterobacteriaceae. Yeah, ACA. Nearly got it right at the end. Um, And that's, that's, yeah, that's one that's become, you know, a real issue here in Victoria. Um, But it's interesting that you say that Candida auris, you know, there's this kind of anxiety or panic almost uh, and a reluctance to increase the panic. because Candida auris, when I was looking this up, um, was the first case of it was detected here in Victoria um, on the 7th of August last year uh, by yep. one person who had, um, I think, travelled overseas um, yep. and came That's back right. with and, it. And the reason that it's so difficult to, to treat this is, first of all, the organism is, evolves rapidly. But the second reason is that the pharmaceutical industry does not see much profit in coming up with new drugs to treat fungal infections because they're relatively rare. And as we like to say in in our world, it's only rare until it happens to you. Mm. And the pharmaceutical industry says we can't make a, you know, it costs a billion dollars to develop any new, new drug. And we can't justify that because there's only, you know, a few hundred cases or a few thousand cases of Candida auris every year, and it's not enough to, to recoup the investment. So what, what I do, and part of my work is is working with the pharmaceutical industry to identify prom, uh, promising drugs to say, here's an opportunity for us to treat um, a deadly infection, and here's how you can turn a profit and benefit patients and benefit the hospital all in one. Uh, and that that proves to be rather challenging, but that's what I spend a lot of time doing. Mm. Before we leave fungi, because um, I also am quite interested in, in this area, I'm interested in the um, distinction that might be made between uh, someone having candida or a fungal infection that might be localised, because I know a lot of people um, might say, oh, well, I have a fungal infection on my feet, or maybe I have it, um, you know, inside me, um, as a localized thing for women in particular, I know experience them. But then there's also um, candidemia, which is a systemic infection when it reaches your um, blood and also can spread elsewhere. I'm interested in how, um, in if we are if we have less and less drugs available to us to treat some of these more um, resistant strains. Are there real consequences when you can't knock it on the head when it becomes um, symptomatic or a problem at a local stage or an early stage? Is is it something that can become problematic because we don't have um, treatments? Absolutely. Um, you know, fun, fungi are everywhere. And if you have a normally functioning immune system, you're usually okay, other than the occasional yeast infection for women um, vaginal yeast infection. But when you have a weakened immune system, that fungus can get inside your bloodstream and can wreak havoc. And that's when people get really in trouble. And we find that there are very few drugs that are used to successfully combat that type of infection. And we're constantly trying to get newer and better treatment options because candida in the blood, as you mentioned, candidemia, that is that can be deadly. And I see patients die from that all the time. And we are constantly trying to encourage the pharmaceutical industry to make new drugs. But, you know, the challenge is that these drugs are given out in, you know, any antibiotic is giving out sparingly. It's only given out in short courses and doctors are stingy about doling them out. And the business model is just very difficult for these companies to, to turn a profit. And what the reason I wrote my book was I wanted 
people to see through the eyes of the patients, not to think about this story from 30,000 feet from, you know, profit margins and supply and demand, but to look into patients' eyes and see just how dire the circumstances can be. Mm. It's quite astonishing to think that a doctor might be in the situation where they have to tell a patient, well, you might just have to put up with it or live with it or die from it. Yeah, that's unfortunately a scenario that we increasingly encounter. And, you know, I opened my book with a patient who we end up having to treat with an antibiotic called colistin. And that is a drug that fell out of favor 25 years ago because it was so toxic. And we're using it again now because it's often one of our drugs of last resort. And so I have to have conversations with patients where I say, this might ruin your kidneys um, in the process of saving you from the infection. And those are conversations I never anticipated having when I was a medical student. Mm. And presumably as a doctor, these are conversations that you might not be prepared for until you have to have them. And um, obviously you might be well versed in those by now, given the number of significant cases you see. But are there, um, in your field, are you looking to also speak to other doctors and enable them to have um, better conversations with their patients about this? Oh, yes. You know, physician communication is something we always struggle with. And the challenge here is that, you know, at my hospital, for example, the the patients routinely say that they receive excellent medical care and they, you know, give us top marks across the board, except in the area of physician communication. They think we do a very bad job of it. And the challenge is that none of the doctors I know think that they're bad at communicating. (laughs) They all think they're actually quite good at it. So there's this disconnect um, between what the patients are experiencing and what the doctors think they're saying. And that extends to antibiotics and to superbugs, but also all across all facets of medicine. So we are are trying to do a better job at that, but it's it's a work in progress. Indeed, yeah, um, it's certainly... Doctors have different strengths, don't they? And that's why some go yes, into different fields. Right. <laughs> ones where the, the patient is asleep most of the time might be best suited to ones with lacking in the communication <laughs> skills. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm really interested and intrigued now to get into what you describe around bacteria, which is, as we said, um, slightly more sexy to some people than fungi. Um, and I'm really interested in this idea around um, not only just bacteria that becomes resistant to antibiotics, which clearly is what one would define as being a superbug, but also what a bacteria actually is, because I was surprised to discover that bacteria actually create their own antibiotics. Well, this is a fascinating thing about life on our, our planet, is that there are trillions and trillions of microbes and they are all in this survival of the fittest trying to kill out everything that's around them and so bacteria can secrete chemicals into the environment that will kill the bacteria around them and if we can pluck those out those are essentially antibiotics they are you know chemical compounds that are designed to kill bacteria They just happen to be made by bacteria. And so one of the great um, uh, exciting things in science right now is that there is this race to find all of these chemicals that bacteria are naturally producing to try to figure out if some of them can be used to make antibiotics. 
the challenge is that it typically takes about 10 years and at least a billion dollars of investment to bring that discovery uh, to the patient's bedside. And it can be very challenging to figure out which of those chemicals we should invest in and which ones should get the the testing, um, the necessary testing to become antibiotics. But that's one of the themes in my book is that this is sort of the future uh, of combating superbugs, is looking into the soil, turning to the the, the subterranean uh, life forms, uh, all the, the bacteria that are living in the soil beneath our feet, to find the next great antibiotics to save save humanity, really. Indeed. And you describe in one of your early chapters the discovery of penicillin, which many people would, you know, might have a basic understanding of coming from mould, which, of course, is, you know, it's a fungi as well. Um, In terms of the idea of an antibiotic, you've just shared there that, like, really, antibiotics have existed since nature existed. Um, Mm -hmm. What's really fascinating in the start of your book is this idea that you raise historically that in you know ancient times, um, skeletal remains, for example, of Sudanese mummies were found to have um, broad-spectrum antibiotics in them or found in them. Um, so presumably this isn't really a modern phenomenon. I mean, it has been modernised and, I guess, industrialised, but antibiotics have been a thing for all of humanity. Yeah, isn't that a crazy finding yeah. that humans have been eating consuming antibiotics for million or you know thousands of years and that when we look at the mummies they have antibiotics in their bones so basically what happened was that the pre you know the cultures of antiquity they recognized that there was some healing property in certain foods and in certain leaf leafy vegetables and they found a way to eat and consume things that happen to have antibiotics in them. Uh, and I think that's an extraordinary discovery uh, that, that just shows how, uh, how life you know, finds a way. And I think we're increasingly returning to those very fundamental principles to try to find more antibiotics. Indeed. And so let's get into some of your antibiotic research and discovery with your colleagues. Um, you say that you are really interested in one that has become really problematic, and I think a number of doctors would be aware of this one, um, methicillin-resistant Staphylococcus aureus, um, yes. MRSA. And that, I mean, it sounds quite horrible um, when I, I asked actually a friend to describe it for me um, because they actually see cases of this. And uh, they said just how scary it is because it creates this environment to live in that is conducive to what it needs to survive. So it creates a special environment in the host that it's in and has all these toxins um, that change the body in different ways. It sounds like a really nasty um, type of superbug. Why has this particular bug become so problematic? It's it's incredibly problematic. And what's interesting about it is it, that when 20 years ago, we only found this superbug in certain places like gymnasiums and in nursing homes. And now it has spread out into the community. And so it's everywhere. And the real difficulty in communicating the, the threat of MRSA is that it's all over the place. There could be MRSA on my forearm right now. But that doesn't mean that it's causing an infection. Our body's natural immune system and our protective barrier of the skin keeps us safe. Uh, But the, the challenge is, if I were to have a large cut on my arm, 
and the MRSA, you know, seeped inside the cut and into my bloodstream, it could kill me. And so, you know, I don't want people to living in, live in fear saying that at any moment disaster could strike. But many of the people who I see um, either have a weakened immune system or have something happen to them that compromises their protective barrier against MRSA. And once it's inside the body, as you point out, it produces these toxins, it changes the host, it changes the environment that it's in, and it, it like, it's very sticky. It likes to stick on to bones and joints and to organs, and it can cause a heart infection. And um, you know, I, was, I saw two patients with MRSA infections this morning, and, and both of them were very, very ill. And both of them were left asking me, how did this happen and what can I do to prevent it from happening again? And so those are the kind of conversations that I, I have uh, almost every single day at work now. Mm, I mean, it must be pretty shocking to get that kind of a diagnosis out of nowhere for, for a lot of people. Oh, yes. And, you know, then there's the stigma attached to it. People mm. want to know, are they contagious? Can they go over to their friend's house? Can they have their granddaughter visit them? And these are things that, you know, we're trying to give people the best information we have with the data that's available. And sometimes the data is is insufficient to, to you know, answer people's questions. And that's where we have to, you know, really kind of scratch our heads and try to figure out how do we give people, you know, the, the right information when there's limited uh, information available. Mm. I'm interested because you're based in New York and um, obviously we're quite far away in Australia, um, that there are different, I guess, regions of the world that might have um, more resistant strains of certain bacteria than others. And certainly even different hospitals have different biomes and are surveilled in a way for the different strains that are currently present in the in the actual building itself. In terms of MRSA, for example, um, you've been working on um, an antibiotic um which is called Delbavancin, I believe. Yeah. Um, and that's, that was interesting to me, given that it's such a, a new um, kind of drug, essentially, although, it, you know, most drugs are basing itself on previous research and kind of evolving. Um, I was interested to, to check that um, in Australia, it hasn't yet kind of been utilised, but um, other, other types of drugs that are the precursor to the one that you've developed, like vancomycin, is quite common still and is still yeah. able to be used in, at least in Australia, have you found that you know the drug like Delbavancin that you um, have been working on has been necessary um, in your in in America in particular because perhaps MRSA has become resistant to a lot of the other drugs you would typically use? Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right, and, and you know I. I hope that Australia does not encounter what we're seeing here in New York, but I suspect that it will uh, a few years from now. And what, what's interesting to me is that the, we have a number of new antibiotics that come out every year, but many hospitals don't use the newest drugs. And part of the reason for that is that these things are so expensive that a pharmaceutical company will say, we spent you know a billion dollars to... Um, create this new drug, Dalbavancin, we're going to charge $4,000 a dose. And the hospital will say, well, we can't afford that. We'll use vancomycin, which is $40 a dose. And there are these you know, financial decisions that are being made behind the scenes that really have profound implications for patients. And 
And that's what, you know, I also wanted to write about that so that people could understand how these financial decisions can affect people. And, you know, what my research focuses on is how do we bring the newest and best drugs, even if they're expensive, how do we make them accessible to all patients so that we can, you know, not only protect patients and treat them, but also prevent the, the spread of these superbugs so that everyone benefits. Indeed. And so in, in your personal experience, you know, not just being a treating physician, but also doing the science behind uh, developing new antibiotics, what are some of the, the, the reasons or the pushbacks that you might get from government and the corporate sector in America around uh, putting more money into developing antibiotics, which are clearly needed, given that you you know sh- share in your book that we had this ex- intense period of development uh, in the 1950s and then a, a huge drop off, and we've almost now been caught very very far behind, and it's almost like pulling teeth to try and get someone to either start uh, researching antibiotics or even just to stay, because it seems like a lot of uh, pharmaceutical companies are divesting um, and are leaving the anti-infective space. That's right. Well, they they tend to lose money. Um, There was a a London School of Economics study which found that when a company invests in a new antibiotic, they typically lose $50 million. And so increasingly, these companies are saying it's not financially worth it for us to take a risk on these things. And so what we're starting to discuss in the United States now is whether or not we should nationalize the production of antibiotics and classify them as a public good, like something like electricity or water, and have the federal government step in and start um, making antibiotics, essentially. Uh, That's going to be a a topic of great debate over the next five to ten years in the United States, uh, because on the one hand, we need new money uh, to invest in these these drugs. On the other hand, when the government gets involved, things get a lot more complicated, and sometimes it stifles in, in innovation. And so we're, we're trying to figure out the best path forward. Uh, there's also talk of pooling resources so that the United States and the European Union and Australia and um, India can pool together billions and billions of dollars to invest in the most promising new drugs and then have everyone share uh, the, the fruits of those investments. Uh, unclear if that's going to work out, but that's something that's also on the table. Indeed. And I, in my introduction um, to this interview, I said how much of a public health and political issue this is. But unfortunately, it keeps on being relegated to the domain of science and medicine and patients and not being picked up by government and um, politicians. I'm interested in uh, the American health system and potentially that it's uh, more controversial to suggest government intervene or become um, producers of of antibiotics or, um, you know, directly funding antibiotic research uh, compared with a place like Australia where it's slightly more accepted and um, part of our culture to have government intervene on our behalf and almost an expectation. Right. We It's not our expectation. <laughs> we we get very worked up about the government stepping in. Um, but I think that when, regardless of your political affiliation, when you walk into a hospital, you want there to be antibiotics available. And I think that this could be a cause that unites uh, people from both sides of our political spectrum, um, because I think, you know, that we, we've reached an inflection point where we need to do something. Um, you know, this my book is not a, a doomsday book of saying that, you know, we're all we're all in, in 
uh, in bad shape. I actually think we have an opportunity to confront this issue, and it begins with civic engagement and with people understanding what's at risk so that we can put forward the best path forward. Um, and that's going to be based on, I think, people having an, an understanding of this uh, superbug issue so that when politicians come out with an idea, we can vet that idea and say that's a good idea or a bad idea. Mm. And that only comes with knowledge. Indeed. And um, in your book, it's it was quite shocking to see that really basic antibiotics that are used, like doxycycline, often experience significant shortages uh, where it's not available. And I'm surprised that that could possibly happen um, to something as, as simple as doxycycline. Although I'm aware that even in Australia, we experience uh, a number of shortages around um, topical antibiotics. And that presumably is re- relating to the fact that, um, you know, we're in a globalised world and every country kind of has an impact on each other. Um, but things like mupirocin, which is we call Bactraban over here, has had mm-hmm. many times where it's been completely unavailable and um, people haven't been able to access that. Um it's kind of, yeah, shocking to think that even the ones that we've developed that work, we may not always have access to. Well, there's a, a term that we say, which is that antibiotics are a market failure. And what that means is that you can't look at simple supply and demand curves to understand the production of these things because there's tremendous demand, um, yet somehow the supply runs out periodically. And mm. that's something that we desperately need to fix. Um, it happened to me just a couple of weeks ago where I couldn't use um, the treatment that I wanted to because we were out of it. And that's not acceptable. And you know, hopefully something will correct in the future. Yeah. Um, you highlight in the book the role of the United Nations and the World Health Organization, which it seems like can play a really important or positive role in coordinating Uh, a response that's based in government and also that influences the corporate sector. Do you think that there's hope in that sense for a a coordinated global role for a body like the UN to be more active and to influence policy? Well, we're what I think what I think we'll have about as much power for the UN to address superbugs as there is to address global warming. Mm. It's something that there, you know, if people can't see it, then they don't always engage. And I know our country has a tumultuous relationship with the UN right now. Um, So while I'd love to see the United Nations step in and take the lead with this, I'm not holding my breath. (laughs) I'm really not surprised. Um, (laughs) They have their own challenges, don't they? Um, And certainly, I guess if you're talking about some of the positive uh, elements of this book and what you'd hope that people might um, get out of it from a patient perspective, but also from a political advocacy perspective, um, what kind of things would you hope for, um, not just in terms of some of those push and pull suggestions that you highlight in your book around getting corporations to be incentivized to invest mm-hmm. in developing new antifungals and new antibiotics, but what are things that citizens should be doing to bring this to the attention of politicians and to put pressure on them? Well, I, I think that this is a challenge because we can't see these superbugs. 
right? They are something that we kind of hear about and then we forget about. But mm. I want people to know that this is ultimately a human story. You know, it's about the humans who have these infections and the humans who are treating them and also the people who are trying to discover new drugs. And I think the first step, once people, you know, understand the issue is to just start talking about it, you know, talking about it with politicians, talking about it in your community, saying, what are we going to do? A lot of people view antibiotics now kind of like a fire extinguisher, that it doesn't matter how often it's used, but just being there makes us all safe. And the more antibiotics we have, the safer we'll be. And so I think the first step is because this is so rarely even talked about in public life, the need for new antibiotics, to just start asking questions of our civic leaders and saying, what's your plan? You know, the World Health Organization said this is going to be the biggest killer of human beings in the year 2050. What are you going to do about it? And that starts, I think, a conversation where if we have a critical mass of people who are engaged in this topic, we can come up with solutions. And that's my ultimate hope uh, with writing this book. Mm. And just finally, Matt, given that you have been instrumental in creating another antibiotic, um, from a practitioner and research perspective, do you see that there are people, other people like you, colleagues in other countries and also even uh, in your circle, who are partnering or pushing um, with pharmaceutical companies to get some of these antibiotics through the pipeline and to keep pushing them along until they're approved by um, government bodies? Yes. You know, there are a lot of unsung heroes out there who wake up every day with the primary focus being getting more antibiotics available, whether that's, you know, searching in the dirt for the next molecule or testing it in, in test tubes and in animals and in healthy humans and in patients with infections. There are so many people out there who are, are desperately working to, to fix this situation, and I'm confident we will. Um, it's just a matter of, uh, of a strategic investment and civic engagement and getting enough people behind this issue so that we can solve the problem. Mm. Matt, it's been such a delight to speak with you on what is quite a disturbing and serious subject. So I really appreciate your um, sunny outlook and optimism. Well, thanks so much for having me. This was a great interview. And um, I do hope that people can read your book because I've barely even scratched the surface of some of the fascinating things that you share with people about the history of this subject as well as the science. So um, thank you so much for what is a very engaging read and I'm sure we'll get people talking. Thanks so much for having me. I've been speaking with Dr. Matt McCarthy, who is, as you can tell, a doctor. He's based in New York and uh, is Assistant Professor of Medicine at Vile Cornell as a staff physician at New York Presbyterian Hospital and um, also edits uh, a journal called Current Fungal Infection Reports and uh, he's written a couple of other books if you're interested. The Real Doctor Will See You Shortly and Odd Man Out and his book that we've been discussing there was um, Superbugs and uh, the subtitle of which is The Race to Stop an Epidemic and it certainly is a race and it definitely is an epidemic so um, I really do hope you can get around to reading it if that's something you're interested in that might have sparked your curiosity um, 
it is a really fantastically written book and very engaging. So you can um, find out more about that through Scribe Publications. And I've seen it in pretty much every bookshop I've stopped by at recently. So it should be pretty easy to get your hands on. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.